getting up either early in the morning or uh, staying up most of the night. Um, uh, it's kind of hard to talk about because people label you as thieves and and corrupt because uh, you're taking recycle out of the recycle bins. You're picking it up off the ground as well. So you're actually doing the service, uh, cleaning up uh, the neighborhood uh, or neighborhoods. Um, but you know, you're out all night and you're just trying to uh, get these materials, the cans, the bottles, the plastics, uh, uh, just so you can make enough money in the morning to survive the day. I'm Laura Flynn and you're listening to Making Contact. Making, making contact. Making, contact. Making, making, making contact. You just heard Landon Goodwin. He's describing what he and many others do to survive. You know, some people do it, um, and they have homes. They're not necessarily homeless people, uh, but it helps supplement their income. And they go out at night, and I go out at night as well. And and we just up all night, uh, hoping and searching. It's a search and seizure type of thing. There's so many reasons why you may become a recycler. Well, for one thing, it's good business. Another thing is good uh, supplement income. And sometimes it's just a necessity because you have no job. I think that people um, don't look at it as real work, but it is. Um, even the people who push the shopping carts, it takes a lot of thought um, on how you're going to balance your shopping cart. Uh, how much you can actually carry on it, uh, how much, how the distance you have to travel. Since the city or the state has labeled them as uh, thieves, uh, so people look at them that way. But they're really not doing any harm. Uh, you know, they're not breaking in people's cars, they're not breaking in people's houses. Actually, they're doing this to keep away from that because a lot of people have criminal records or have been uh, uh, indigent for so long that uh, it's hard for them to find the legitimate work. So they just kind of do this to make ends meet. I think a lot of people stopped uh, their thieveries and, and prostitutions and, every, and a lot of different things because of the recycle. They were able to recycle to make money, so they just stopped doing that. If you take that away, uh, they, people are going to survive, and, and they may become corrupt again and do corruptible things. So I don't really think it's a good idea. I think what they need to do is to have a dialogue uh, and engage the people in a way that they can make this possible for people and uh, even the people, you know, you have to have conversation and talk to the people and, and find out if you can make a way to, to kind of uh, decriminalize recycling and, and, and make it a way for people to be able to do it because otherwise you're going to cause a lot of chaos because there's a lot of people who don't have and that's their only substance is recycling. Once homeless and combing the streets of Oakland, California for recyclables to make ends meet, Landon Goodwin is now a pastor helping the homeless. His story is not uncommon. Millions, perhaps billions of people around the world work in jobs that aren't formally recognized or afforded many of the social and legal protections of typical wage-earning jobs. They're often not even thought of as legitimate work. On this edition of Making Contact, we're going to meet people making work where there is no work. From recyclers to border couriers to waste pickers, we're exploring the informal labor sector and what some are doing to gain greater recognition, protections, and rights. First, we head to the Spanish enclave of Ceuta, bordering Morocco. The border is a gateway for a brisk trade. Moroccan markets sell goods imported from Spain at a discount for buyers. But that discount comes at a price for the Moroccan women who bring those goods across the border on their backs. 
co-reported with Maggie Donaldson, Thalia Beatty brings us this story. When my husband died, I went every day, without exception, because besides me, there's no one to support my children. My children are young. Sometimes I work and sometimes I don't. When I work, I come back to the house happy. And when I don't work, I come home and I am upset and sick. This is the world. Aisha Lazuzi is doing what many mothers do. She's making ends meet. But her particular burden is heavy. She's in her living room in a small town in northern Morocco, and she explains how women in the area, like her, make money. They literally carry thousands of tons of goods each year across the border from the Spanish city of Ceuta into the neighboring Moroccan town of Fenidic. At the crossing, we go through carrying the goods on our backs. Then we walk through a big gate to reach the Moroccan border, up on a hill, and there we put the goods down and take our fee. Their role in this international trade is to be the pack animals. In French, they are literally called femmulets, mule women. And there's a very simple reason why this happens. These women don't pay any official customs fee or tax at the border. Thanks to a legal loophole, the goods on their backs are considered personal luggage, and that's untaxed. The packages are so heavy, the men working at the warehouses along the Moroccan-Spanish border have to help them tie the bundles on their backs. We can't put them on our backs. Sometimes we are forced to push them with our hands, and then sometimes we can't even push them because they are so heavy and we don't know what the goods are inside them. The American Chamber of Commerce in Morocco says this unusual but legal trade represents a third of the economic activity in the Spanish enclaves, and it directly supports tens of thousands of Moroccans in the surrounding area. Earlier in the day, along with my co-reporter Maggie Donaldson, I met Aisha on the border. She was standing in a long line of women on the Spanish side. Hundreds of them were waiting on the road, leading to dozens of warehouses where these goods are stored. She introduces herself and says we are in occupied Ceuta. I ask her to explain what they're doing here. We came here for work, to earn a morsel of bread. <laughs> she tells us most of the women have slept overnight on the pavement outside of the warehouse complex. If we came in the morning from Morocco to Ceuta, we would not find a place in order to work, to enter Ceuta. Because of this, we sleep here. Some of the women in line are now using the cardboard they sleep on to shield themselves from the sun. The wage for bringing a load of goods across the border is five euros a day, and the women in line say it's not enough. But this is one of the few ways they can earn a living here. Many of them tell us they are widows or, for other reasons, are the sole breadwinners in their families. And the competition between them to get to the front of the line is fierce. Spanish border guards oversee this whole operation. When we arrived at 7 a.m., they gave us permission to record audio but not to take video. 
They also asked us not to photograph them and declined to be interviewed. The guards keep the women standing against a stone wall that lines the road. They tell us off mic they started enforcing the line because people were trampling each other to get into the warehouse complex. But as we witnessed, that means using violence themselves. We heard shouting behind us and turned to see an old woman emerge from a crowd holding a cloth to her bleeding nose. The women nearby told us a Spanish guard just smacked her for trying to jump ahead. Aisha is not surprised. She points to the places on her body where she has been hit before, rolling up her leggings to reveal her knee. She says she had a huge bruise there. A woman behind her adds, this happens a lot. This is a tenuous equilibrium ruling this cross-border trade. The Spanish guards allow these women to come over from Morocco in the middle of the night and sleep in line. Then, at around 8 a.m., the guards let the women into the warehouse complex. Each woman then straps a huge package to her back. The packages are stamped with a color and a number, indicating the Moroccan merchant who ordered the goods. The bundles can contain anything, from dish soap to diapers to cooking oil. After being loaded down, each woman hobbles through a narrow chain-link fence, and often she pushes or carries another package in her arms. It's about a half-mile walk through the border crossing to the Moroccan side. There, the women drop off the package, or as it's considered officially, their personal luggage, and the Moroccan merchant pays them their wage. At around 10 a.m., just two hours later, the guards shut down the border crossing designated for this trade. The women at the back of the line, who did not get to go through, turn around and go home. Most of the time I don't work, honestly, because I can't stand to sleep in Ceuta. The largest portion of the people, most of them, sleep in Ceuta, on the street. And I can't because I'm sick, and my heart, my arteries, and, and my thyroid. And I don't sleep there. I go at 2 a.m., and if I'm lucky, I will work and return with money. And if I'm not lucky, I return empty-handed. Aisha is sitting on her couch later that afternoon with her son. Her oldest daughter, Selma, is cooking couscous in the kitchen, and the two youngest children are on their way home from school. She says she is tired and dizzy from lack of sleep, but she has no choice but to continue working on the border. The person responsible for the family is the woman. Even if she has a husband, she doesn't depend on him working because he doesn't. And she is forced to work in Ceuta to help him with the daily expenses, especially in the northern region. The northern region is marginalized, honestly. Many people in the northern reef, as the region is called, feel it has been ignored by the state. Recently, a huge port opened nearby, potentially a source of employment for many in the area. But Selma, Aisha's daughter, says the jobs have not gone to locals. To get work here, especially in Morocco, 
requires that you have connections. You have to know someone who knows someone who can intervene for you to get you work. People who have connections or relatives, they work. People that have only God do not work. After her father died, Selma could no longer afford to pay for university. But she managed to enroll in a private technical school because the principal was impressed by her grades. There, she learned to drive a forklift, a skill she thought could get her employed at the port. But she says a year later, she's still looking for a job. All I want now is to find work and for my mother not to go to Ciuta. I want her to just stay at home and take care of my little siblings, to take care of herself, to take care of her health. And I want to find work so I can provide for my family. Until she does, her mother Aisha will continue to trek across the border. While the work is literally backbreaking, she says there is no substitute for the work in Ciuta for women like her. But she hopes the Moroccan authorities will make better opportunities for her children. For Making Contact, I'm Thalia Beatty from Ciuta, Spain. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. There's a neighborhood in Nairobi, Kenya, that doubles as the city's main garbage dump. More than 900 tons of trash are piled into Dandora every day. It was declared full more than a decade ago, but the trucks kept coming, dropping everything from household scraps to medical waste. The dump has polluted the water, soil, and air, according to the human rights group Concern Worldwide. And it has compromised the health of more than 200,000 people. Often the trucks also dump garbage into the surrounding residential courtyards. And while an estimated 10,000 people earn money by mining the trash for recyclables, even those who work at the dump don't want to live surrounded by garbage. Reporter Binish Ahmed has a story of a community-driven cleanup effort that's made real changes in Dandora. They, they, they did not have anywhere else to dump. They just dumped outside. So... You can see this was one of a big, big, big dump site in this area. When Charles Gashonga Gishonge moved back to the Kenyan capital of Nairobi, he was disappointed to see how the neighborhood he grew up in had changed. When I came back, I found my estate is as dilapidated more. It looked more filthy, more, more dirty. And two days when I was here, four boys had been shot. And something just came to me that if we just we clean up and we raise the mustard seeds, we can clean out and make Dandora a better place for everybody to be happy to live in. Yeah. He dreamed of bringing big changes to Dandora, but starting small, just like how tiny mustard seeds bloom into big yellow flowers. So Gishanga rallied a couple of his friends to clean up the courtyard between their houses. They raked up heaps of trash and sent it away, or burned it. They cleared a gutter people had forgotten about, so sewage no longer flooded their doorsteps. They built a playground and planted flowers. Then, they painted it all bright yellow and green and called it the Mustard Seed Court. The courtyards offer kids a place to play, 
but they have a lot more to offer than slides and swings. Personally, I was looking at it as how this, uh, uh, this open spaces, public spaces, can become of use to the, to the youth. Since we have so many youths around Dandora who, who are idle, not even in Dandora, the entire Nairobi who are idle, we were looking at how we can, we can make use of these spaces. A space like this, we can create more than five jobs in this space on the left. And the space on the right here, we can create more than 10 jobs to the youth. How does an empty plot of land create jobs? We'll be using this space as an event and functions. We'll be hiring it out. If you want to wed, if you have a birthday for your kids, if you have a party, if you have a meeting, a function with your government offices and they want to meet, what will just remain here is a tent, some tents, some seats and a PA system. Then we are, we, are, we are set to go. Gishonge hopes the event space will be a lasting way to fund the upkeep of his community. It's just one way the courts are using the space they recovered from heaps of trash to earn money. Following Gishonge's lead, many of the other courtyards in the area have been converted into parking lots, where cars are safeguarded and washed for a nightly fee. Together with a small fee collected from residents and landlords, the courtyards bring in around 2,000 U.S. dollars a month. Gishonge says that's enough to pay 10 people a basic labor wage and offer up award money as incentive to follow the mustard seed court's lead. So we came up with an idea of enrolling a competition. The best transformed court was to win 100,000 equivalent to 1,000 U.S. dollars. Gishonge leads me past vegetable stalls and barber shops to a nearby courtyard that's in the running for this year's competition. We meet Anthony Macau, a 21-year-old who helped during the seven-month-long cleanup of his court. I responded to call from the mustard seed court and I got involved because I wanted to do something to change my environment. Now he works as a guard watching over the 20-some cars that are parked there every night. The transformation has changed how he feels about his home. Before, this was a dumping site. Now, it has an estate feel. That feeling has spread along with the brightly colored gates, potted plants, and open spaces that the mustard seed court modeled. Richard Munene is a restaurant owner who's washing his car under the late afternoon sun. These boys are the cleanup here, and they take care of this washing this car. But for today, I'm the one who's doing this job. He used to park his car at a nearby mosque. There was no room for it outside of his house. In fact, Munene says, it was hard to see even a dozen feet beyond his front door. All over there was dark, so even if you stand here, somebody on the other side cannot see you. Even if somebody can want to attack you and stand the other way, he cannot see you. So he will attack you very well. But now you are, you are okay because you are seeing everything. Part of the money collected goes to watchmen who stand guard by the locked gates outside of each court. With this added line of defense, crime has gone down, according to residents like Munene. It's been enough to change his feelings about his neighborhood. 
I was thinking how I can quit this place and go to the another place because it was very dirty, security was very bad, so that, but now I'm here to stay because of these boys. Now, Munene says, he's proud to call Dandora home. For Making Contact, I'm Beanish Ahmed, reporting from Nairobi, Kenya. Dumping remains a major public health issue in Dandora, but the trash is also a livelihood for thousands. Sally Rover, the Urban Policy Director for Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing, or WIGO, says that's the reality for many around the world. You know, they don't see other options. They don't see there aren't jobs offered that come with a formal contract, that come with uh, labor protections, that, that come with access to social protection. Those are fewer and fewer. And so um, part of it is a matter of just people do what they need to do to survive. Given this reality, WIGO tries to legitimize the work of informal workers. Because one of the big challenges they have is that if you, for example, are an informal recycler and you're walking through the streets collecting uh, cardboard, let's say, from behind buildings and from dumpsters and things, um, that work is not because you're working on your own account and because you're not employed by any sort of formal employer and probably you don't have a uniform and or an ID card or anything like that, that type of work that people are critically dependent on for survival is not recognized as legitimate work. So we try to um, increase the, the, the validity or the legitimacy, in other words, of the work that people are doing in order to get by. They also try to increase the visibility of informal workers in policy settings locally and internationally, so groups can improve conditions in their own communities. In 2012, we did a study called the Informal Economy Monitoring Study, which was to analyze the working conditions in the informal economy and what were the drivers behind them. And so one of the groups that we worked with for the study was is called HomeNet Thailand. And it's an organization of home-based workers in, in Thailand. Um, and this what we found out from the study is that one of the big um, challenges that home-based workers have is if they live on the outskirts of the city, the transport system doesn't serve them well. So the, the it takes you know it might take an hour or two to get into a central city market that you need when you're a home-based worker in order to buy supplies, let's say. And so what they were able to do is take the data from the study showing how long they have to wait for buses, how infrequent the bus service is, how unpredictable the bus service is, and how much time they lose. Uh, waiting for a bus that they don't know whether it's going to come or not. So they took the data from from that study and they held a policy dialogue with city officials showing, uh, you know, research-based evidence on what that challenge is all about and how it undermines their ability to make a living. And so as a result of the policy dialogue, they were able to convince city officials to increase the frequency of, of, of bus transport to the community where they were living. So it's it's that type of um, you know, marriage between research and advocacy that we do in, in partnership with, with workers' organizations. One of the other groups within the WeGo network sharing organizing ideas is KKPKP, a union of waste pickers in Pune, India. Malti Gadgil describes what their work is like. Imagine millions of tons of waste that has been dumped in an area 
Sometimes there are mini fires in these heaps of waste and it's accumulated waste over 30 years. You see carcasses of animals, you see plastic, paper and mattresses and you know all kinds of stuff and metal, sharp, everything. And you see now waste picker in that setting. So my name is Malti and I work with uh, waste pickers in Pune, India. Women who must feed their children um, are taken to it many times because the husband is not contributing. For a woman, the choice is, do I let my child starve or do I let, you know, pick out this waste, sell it, and that day I make money to buy food to put on, uh, to put on the table. What a waste picker does on a daily basis would be sorting through heaps and heaps of waste. I mean, the kind of images that we see here are very stark, and they, and that is, I mean, what you don't get to see or what you don't get to feel is the smell. Today in Pune, of the six, seven hundred tons of waste that we are handling day to day, we're probably recycling about 90 tons of dry recyclable waste, which is plastic, paper, metal and glass. We're also composting 10 tons of organic waste per day. And while many of us think that it should be a livelihood that doesn't exist anymore, I think some of us on the other end are saying that this is the reality of it, this is a livelihood, this is a viable livelihood. So why don't we actually change how it's done? When we started mobilizing 25 years ago, we sort of spoke to waste pickers, talked to them about their issues, what it is that they were that they were dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And one of the, the several issues that they talked about is police brutality, uh, sort of people thinking of them as thieves because they are going through somebody else's trash. And so all of those things, we, when we put that all together, we said, do you think it might be better to actually fight some of them, not individually, but as a group? That sort of got the women very excited and they said, yeah, let's do that. So we sort of talked to a few women and then the women within their own slums or shanty towns sort of spread that word and said, let's get together, let's put in some money, let's form our own union. And then we sort of started making some other connections to say that, hey, we're doing recycling. So let's try to prove to the local municipality that we are doing some very impressive work here. So why don't we get some recognition for it and decriminalize the activity that we are doing? So we were able to do that after about, I don't know, five years of organizing and, and sort of lobbying, we were able to do that. And then we also said that we are doing work that can be quite hazardous. So we sort of got an insurance for, uh, for the Waste Picker members, paid for entirely by the municipality. And then we also get an ID card issued, which in many ways legitimizes the work that we do. So those are the connections that we have done. So all this is done through the union of waste pickers as a collective. So there's the voice gets much bigger, stronger when you're doing it as a group rather than, rather than as an individual. That was Malti Gadgil with the KKPKP Waste Picker Union from Pune, India. Special thanks to Lisa Rudman for that interview. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. 
Do you have a story to share? Send it to us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks to our voiceover talents, Charlotte Silver, Vika Aronson, and Raja Shah. And a special thank you to all the people who supported Making Contact's recent crowdfunding campaign, including these superstars, Barbara Turner, Joan Marler, Simon Avakian, Laura X, Dan Fletcher, and Karen Gordon-Brown. For more information about Making Contact, go to radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. The Making Contact team includes Quan Booth, Jasmine Lopez, Lisa Rudman, and Andrew Stelzer. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.